You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Mort Siebert and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For long-time listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you're newer to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and all of the past episodes that you may have missed. Jerry Moritz, good morning, good afternoon. How are things on your side? Pretty good. Good morning, good afternoon, guys. Sunny day, uh, surprisingly sunny for a February winter period, but uh, it's good. It's surprisingly cold here in Florida, 45 degrees, but it's going to get warmer, so... Don't feel sorry for me. Well, we can't always have it the way we want, right? So, yeah. uh, But anyways, quick roundup uh, of this week. I mean, I guess there are two main things that I took away from last week. One, we had you know seven straight sessions of gains for gold, which sent gold prices to a seven-year high on Friday. Uh, I guess as investors continue to search for safety, for their uh, somewhere to place their cash. Um, but it wasn't the only asset that set a record uh, this week. Intraday... We saw the 30-year bond in the U.S. set a historic record. It reached a yield of as little as 1.89%, uh, of course, supported by other maturities. I think the U.S. 10-year note didn't quite make a new all-time low, um, beating the 2016 low, uh, which is 1.36%, but it got very close. I think it touched 1.44% this week. So pretty amazing. Um, and... Um, you know, why don't we just leave it at that uh, in terms of market recap? We'll get into things like that uh, as we uh, talk about it. Um, Moritz, you were out last week doing a lot of traveling, um, and so we missed you. And uh, excited to hear how things uh, have been panning out while you've been... Usually things go really well for you when you go away, so I don't know, maybe there's a trend there. Uh, yeah, it's been okay. Um, the weather was great in uh, Australia, and I listened to the podcast, uh, uh, which you two guys did, and uh, um, <laughs> it sounded like uh, you needed you, you need me to get to, to get the juices flowing and and to be the podcast less gentlemanlike or something like that. I think I underheard, so that um, happy to be back. Um, but yeah, the, the the trend continues. It seems to be when I'm out of the away from the podcast, then performance is at least positive. It wasn't massively positive for me. I think uh, 42 basis points up this past week, and uh, just a couple of basis points, maybe five or so the week before. So, um, so not a lot really. But um, like he suggested, Niels, um, gold and silver and palladium, all of those markets have been doing really well for me in this past week. And also the bonds. Uh, the bonds are back uh, in a way. Not as um, the trend is not as steep, not as strong as it used to be in the early summer days of last year. But you know, we're we're making it back towards the uh, all-time lows of the yields. Um, so um, I'm not as long as I used to be, but I'm getting there. So making money off those bonds and equities have been a little, you know, a bit poor. Um, um, and uh, and some of the currencies I lost money. I think of the Mexican peso and and also in the Japanese yen. But other than that, uh, looking pretty good. Yeah, uh, on our side, also a small positive for the uh, week. Um, still strong for the month. Still, obviously, have a week left, so anything can happen. Um, best trade, or not best trade, best position for the week was gold. Uh, not surprising with the run it's had, uh, but. From a sector point of view, fixed income, as you say, Moritz, uh, did re reasonably well. I would say currencies on our side were pretty mixed, but with some uh, definitely some differences. Yen doing well, Mexican peso not so well. So a little bit of difference there. But of course, weakness in equities, especially towards the end of the week, that's really where we saw uh, the losses since we are uh, heavily long in those uh, trends right now. So uh, that's really how the week uh, shaped uh, up for, for us. Um, 
Equity is still in focus, uh, Jerry, so it's always uh, interesting to hear whether single stocks uh, have come up with any surprising uh, trends while we've been away for the last week. Well, some of my stocks are in a big trends. You still have Tesla and some of the um, tech-related stocks, um, you know, satellite or space and things like that are kind of going crazy. Um, so I have a good broad portfolio. I got hammered in some of my stocks and actually had a good day, I think, uh, one day this week when the S&P was down a lot. Uh, prob- I'm not sure why. I don't remember why, but um, I was just checking uh, some of the other bonds that I follow, corporate bonds and uh, ETF. They made new highs. They're much stronger than than the other bonds, than the government bond futures and emerging market bonds, strong mortgage-backed Bond ETFs way stronger. So um, this volatility we saw last year in the rates and the bad period and the horrible month—it's uh, all forgotten, just like we thought it would be. But you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future? We may see something similar or worse, or keep going higher. It's the, just the um, power of the trends, and really the power of just sticking with the trends. That's. Um, we're coming, we're seeing a good year this year and a lot of good trends. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and um, I've got some things I wanted to dive into later, maybe uh, that kind of relates to some of these uh, things that you mentioned. Uh, but why don't we stick with the normal uh, routine and see what was uh, topical in uh, your uh, in your Twitter feed, what people liked, disliked, or just reacted to in general um, to gauge some of the uh, pulse uh, of the week right now? Well, honestly, um, sometimes I have to just give up and forget about uh, what people like and dislike because uh, it's not a lot of likes sometimes, and I disagree. Some of the things I get one like on, I'm like, well, you guys blew it on that one. But once again, I... Intrigued and really enjoyed um, a deep dive in with Harold DeBoer at TransTrend on the Hedge Fund Journal. I'm just really enjoying for the third or fourth week in a row these intense, uh, long articles about a trader, a trader, a, a firm, uh, or a, a group of traders being interviewed. And it's just a lot of great uh, gems in there, and some of them are sort of new or just. Um, confirm what I believe, which I suppose is some sort of bias I've heard, you know, that you're not supposed to only read or be influenced by things that agree with your already pre-existing uh, thoughts, but uh, so be it. Um, so he's pretty an intriguing guy. So he starts out with uh, unorthodox decision-making drives performance, but recognition requires telling a story that sells. Or unorthodoxy doesn't sell well, it essentially states we do not worship what most investors believe. He's sort of getting uptight about how what's been going on in CTA land. We're all, in his opinion, the CTAs have sort of all, they used to be a lot different. They used to do things differently, but now they're all sort of one thing. And um, he goes on, they shifted from trading as many as possible markets to striving to be sizably positioned in different trends. If a market is just a, a less efficient way of trading the same trend, that can be more efficiently traded through other instruments. There is no value in trading it. And I've sort of thought that for a while now that I used to brag about how I traded all the markets and how important that was. But I really had too much concentration like in things like energy or precious metals where they're all highly correlated. And in a more eloquent way, he's sort of saying, yeah, I used to trade all these markets, but now I'm making sure that uh, – I'm not kidding myself. If I have on three big positions in gold, silver, and platinum, that's the same trend. Is that what I want? Is that helping or hurting my overall diversification? So I was, that's been a theme of mine for a while to sort of correct my thinking um, on uh, highly correlated markets and sort of recognize it's all the same trend. Did you have a chance to um, read the article, uh, Moritz? No, I have not, but it's in my inbox, so I uh, still need to get to that, and I have a lot of a lot of catching up to do with my with my inbox. <laughs> it's flowing over, um, but you know, I, I guess uh, my comment on that is uh, that that's exactly what I think uh, I am doing. I think it's what Jerry's doing as well. We, I think it's it's a good idea 
to trade all the markets, but you need to recognize that they are highly correlated. And if they are highly, highly correlated, make adjustments for that fact. Because no market is perfectly correlated. Gold and silver do not correlate with one, right? So by definition, the trend is not exactly going to be the same. There's a little bit of diversification in there, just not, not as much as, you know, gold and wheat. So there's nothing wrong with trading gold, silver, and platinum at the same time. Uh, but your position sizing, when you form that cluster, needs to take that fact into account. So I heard it. I heard other things in what uh, Jerry said. Um, I heard, rightly or wrongly, uh, this um, evolution of us trying to um, become more and more diversified. Also, in a sense, uh, in doing so, ending up looking very similar to the way we were back in the day, where we were very different. But I also interpreted it a little bit different, and that is... I mean, I think you need to stand. I mean, in order to stand out from perform with performance, you also need to have the courage to stand out with the positions and the way you trade. So, I'm I'm not so sure that trading all the markets per se. Um, I mean, I understand the argument for doing so, but I think we lose one thing, and that is, we lose conviction. And I think conviction in certain positions um, is critical if you want to deliver above average return. Yeah, sure, it comes with more volatility, probably, yeah, that's fair. But I think if you want to deliver outsized returns, it you can't just look like the average, right? And and I think if we trade all the markets, we may end up looking like the the average because our position size per market becomes so small. And I'm not saying that because we you know, at dawn, trade much smaller set of markets. I mean, 55 markets. So we will have concentration. We will have conviction in the portfolio and we will have volatility from time to time. No doubt about it. I just don't know a way where you can get both. <laughs> and I think what he's saying, without having read the article, but from what Jerry was quoting, that you need to kind of stand out a bit uh, in, you know, in, in order to... Um, deliver returns that are different to to everyone else but diversification can only be a positive thing right we all agree on that so if you are running a more diversified portfolio then that allows you to trade larger position sizes across the portfolio because it is more diversified so if you, but, you will get the same return with less volatility so you get a better risk adjusted return by being more diversified and i will never you know that this this is a golden rule And I don't think that anybody's doing anything right by saying, I'm leaving diversification on the table. I don't take it. And I become more concentrated in certain positions because I want to have a higher return. But it comes with more vol. But is you that true, Moritz? Is that true, Moritz? I mean, if you yeah. have a 50 portfolio, if a market, a portfolio with 50 markets, mm -hmm. would you take the same risk per market if you had 100 markets in that portfolio? Would I take the same risk per market? So if, if you take, okay, let's make yeah. it very simple. You have 50 markets in your portfolio and you take 50 basis points risk mm -hmm. per market, right? If I give, if you, if I say to you, okay, now go to 100 markets, mm -hmm. would you still take 50 basis points? No, you can take more. That's what I'm saying, right? Because you so have you a more diversified portfolio. you take even more risk per market. Exactly, because you have run a more diversified portfolio. But I don't understand. I don't see that you can get that much more diversification that would allow you to trade with even more, because a lot of the markets you will have to add are not that uncorrelated. This yeah, is my point. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm making adjustments for that. I'm not saying it's you know it's a linear scaling of risk from you know 50 bips to one percent risk. But I mean, as with any investment, you know, if it's more diversified, you can run it at a higher vol to get a higher risk-adjusted return. The same is true for trend following. Yeah, but I still don't. I mean, I. I'm I'm gonna be a little bit uh, different on this one because I also hear uh, both you and Jerry say, "Oh yeah, we know that energies are the same, so we trade them half size." So to me, that doesn't seem like you're trading them at the same size because they're correlated. What mm -hmm. I'm trying to say is, and again, there is no wrong or right. I mean, clearly it works for you guys, and and it works for us on our side. But you know, we don't trade smaller in Brent just because we also trade crude. We treat them the same. And but so then, then you run a higher risk on them, right? If they're very highly correlated, well, no, because, it's kind of like you because, have two positions on. Because the difference is here, Moritz, we don't trade 50 basis points per market. We don't have a fixed budget per market that we have okay. to be in. We adjust the overall risk budget 
of the portfolio according to the conditions. And so we could both be right, right? But all Fine. I'm saying is when I think about someone adding a 50 more markets, I don't think of someone adding 54 markets or another 50 markets taking the exact same risk uh, as they did on the first, because at some point you're going to end up with huge positions, uh, not to say massive amount of margin being used if you're just doubling your uh, position, uh, number of positions, but with the same size. I think the core of your argument I don't agree with, Niels, and that is that um, you're not diminishing anything. Um, it's sort of like if you have a positive system and you go in and you play, you have a team of people that play 50 blackjack tables. And then you, you know, that is going to be worse than if you had 100 people playing 100. All you're doing, you're having the same edge and you adjust your betting size, like you said, to roughly half per hand or per trade or whatever. But with trend following, uh, and all the trades have the same expectation. Oops. See, once you, if you don't believe that, then I agree with you. But if you believe that all the trades have the same expectation, then all you need to do is just get as diversified as possible and then play your edge out. So if you're trading 100 markets, your overall risk obviously can be a little higher than if you're trading 50 markets. Um, but not a lot higher. Would, would you agree with that? That This is my core argument that I, I agree with you. If, if your edge is the same and you take more bets in, in different markets, sure. But if you're low, if you're, if you're actually not taking the same bet, you're taking smaller bets now because you have more markets, right? You, if you go to the casino, you have a thousand dollars. you have more dollars. markets. And so all of those trades have the same expectation. So it's just better, as Moritz was saying. There's no downside. Not if you take smaller, if you take smaller uh, risk, right? Because then you you might end up having more winners, but it's with a smaller position size. Well, you got you got to distinguish because we're going back and forth, and you and we're leaving out the key word: more risk per trade. No, more risk overall. Yes. So just because my gold position is smaller than someone else's who you know doesn't cut back the gold when they're trading silver and platinum as well. Um, you know, it doesn't mean I'm making less money. I'm making less money on that gold trade, but I've got more trades. I've got 100 markets versus 50. So the platinum has the same expectation as the silver, as the gold, as all the different markets, the shorts and longs as well. And it just depends, I think, you know, choose your poison. Um, you know, do you want to see, like, gold start acting a lot more different than silver and platinum? Well, it's happening. Right now, it's happening. Gold's up 28 bucks on Friday. Silver's up 22 cents. Okay. I hate that. I do not want to ever see that. Okay. Then you need to trade gold, silver, and platinum, for instance, the same size. Personally, I chose something different. I come in one day randomly. It doesn't matter what style of money management I have, whether I'm using stops, <clears throat> whether I'm using a risk budget or whatever. I come in one day. All the precious metals are down three ATRs. And I'm thinking to myself, that's the same damn trade. They're all down three ATRs. I'm getting my ass kicked today. I do not want to see that. That's what I've chosen. So it's both. You're going to run across both those situations, uh, depending upon you have to make a choice. I really don't. I'm really going to be a risk manager first and foremost, or I'm going to just suck it up because you know those are different markets. They're not correlated to one, like Moritz said. They have different patterns. And I'll, okay, so I come in one day and it's I'm getting crushed into precious metals or the currencies or the bonds or the stocks without paying any regard to, they're all sort of similar. Then I'm, I'm down with that because there's a positive to that. They're going to have different chart patterns and I want I don't want to blow a trade. You know, I've seen it many times, uh, you know, well, just a few times where my track record is dominated a couple of times by this heating oil. Uh, that doubled in price where crude sort of sat there and so what it does mean i think this is what you were going going to niels at least this is this is my hunch this is where you were going with that we're not going to see our portfolio as dominated by a single trade or a single market as other cta so for instance gold right you've you've used the word conviction i mean i don't have any conviction in, in any of those trades but 
um, you know, for last for the last week, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, could look back and say it would have been so much nicer to have a larger gold position. And had I a smaller portfolio with less markets in it, then the dominance of gold would probably be more, uh, you know, uh, visible in the daily returns. But there's a there's a flip side to that argument, right? It 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 worked last week and it worked on the upside and it's it's a nice to have. But the flip side is the risk side. And my point is that I can get a more diversified portfolio with a better risk return profile by adding more markets to it, even if they're positively correlated. And there is no limit to that to that benefit. The limit becomes smaller with every market or the benefit becomes smaller with every market that you add, but it's still positive unless the market is perfectly correlated. I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, I agree with, with that, that, that of course you can certainly find markets that are adding benefit to you without a doubt. And I don't, I'm not arguing that 50 markets and hundred markets, these are the numbers, right? But I, I base it on, on two things. One is of course that, you know, you get to a point where you're already trading 10 equity markets. So will equity market number 11 do any, do much for you? Probably not. And I think we're saying the same thing on that. But the other thing I'm basing it on is my own conversation with Hal Dubois from Transtrend, where he explains, and it's in one of the interviews with him, where he says, in the old days, we used to trade 350 markets. They were one of the most diversified, as far as I remember, I apologize if I'm quoting you wrong, Harold, but they were one of the most diversified managers I've ever seen. And in, the, in our conversation, he said, but we realized it doesn't really work. So they started trading less, fewer markets. I'm but not saying they're going that's right extreme, back. Yeah. But yeah. I just quoted uh, that. He just said a quote about that, and that's back to the point we were making, which is um, I'm realizing that gold, silver, and uh, platinum are the same thing. So why am I thinking I'm trading all of these markets when I'm? it's the same quote-unquote trend? So you're making our point, which is, yeah, you don't want to do that. You're not gaining a lot by you trade one of the three or all three. You, those are problems if you trade each one of the three, but slightly smaller, um, then that seems to be the compromise that um, you know, I've chosen. And, but you know, if you went to somebody, if someone came to you and said, uh, from the stock world, and said, uh, you know, I try and follow stocks only, and I'm very happy, I got lots of diversification, you would say, well, not as much as me. I have currencies, commodities, bonds as well, longs and shorts. So I appreciate your trend following, and I appreciate that you're you're trading a lot of equities, but you're not doing shorts. You don't have these three other sectors. You're really blowing it. You could school them and, t you know, and, and, uh, and tell them uh, uh, very convincingly that they needed more diversification. It just doesn't stop at your 50. It goes up to 100 or 200 or 300. One of these days, CTAs like us will be trading you know, maybe 100 different markets that, have, that are not, there's not really an uh, you know, a discernible overlap there. The correlations are fairly low. And that's the more and more uh, markets that you can trade like that or craft the portfolio to maximize that real diversification, the real trends out there, the better trend following looks. I think Jerry may be the, the perfect example with his decision to break up the equity indices into the single stocks and milk all the diversification out of those. Um, you know, you could say, why do that? just stay with the S&P 500, but he didn't do that. He, you know, selected a couple of stocks out of those indices to to get that diversification benefit and get more bets on. And I think this has exactly the effect of um, lowering your risk because you're more diversified. But, you know, if, if the S&P makes a 5% move higher in a week, then if Jerry's lucky, he's going to be making 5% with all those stocks, but probably he won't because they won't be perfectly correlated to the S&P and he may be slightly up. Man, I tell you, it really is stressful and you have to, you know, you get into the stock thing and you're like, oh, this is so much fun. A thousand stocks with enough liquidity that I can uh, trade them and I can go out and all I need is like 20 or 30 and I've got an amazingly um, <clears throat> diverse portfolio. You know, unfortunately, on those great S&P days or years or months, you know, where the S&P is crushing it, I'm sitting here going, what am I doing? I've got yeah. too much diversification. <laughs> there, there may be the point, though, when the S&P breaks, you know, 7% lower in a week and you don't. Exactly. And that's 
that's when you have a good time. Exactly. And that's the whole point that we're making. But that's true with our other markets as well. You keep telling yeah. me all these markets, currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, they all have the same expectation. But you're getting crushed by the S&P. It's just not working out. It will. Trust me. It has and it will. It's just that I, I'm going to have massive um, performance difference from the best performing sector or market. You know, the S&P, in my opinion, is just really one market. There's um, a handful of stocks, Microsoft and Apple, that are 80 or 90% correlated to it. So it's really just one market. Yeah, and of course, I don't disagree that trading single stocks compared to an index can give you more diversification. I don't disagree that there are markets out there that will add diversification. My key argument is I think there is a limit. Uh, I mean, where it just is not worth it, and whether that's 50 markets, it's probably higher than that, I would admit to that. Um, but I don't think trading 150 markets, because I don't think there is truly 150 markets that are that uncorrelated if you take aside uh, single stocks. Um, but that's fine. We don't have to uh, agree on this uh, podcast. I don't think we disagree on the fundamentals of the benefit of diversification, because that's not my argument. Uh, my argument is just that I, I, I've not... I. I fear that we are getting a little I fear that we're getting away from sometimes having a bit of you know exposure real exposure in our portfolio um, uh, because of you know the worries and, and 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 the fact that we don't want to have you know much volatility and all of that stuff and and if if that's the case it's like oh we can just remove the the volatility and the downside and still have all the upside i'm not so sure we can unless we're willing to be courageous from time to time and have a bit of concentration in the portfolio in those things that really move that's i think um but anyways it's a good start to twitter i was i was with you that i'm not with you that i'm back <laughs> so, yeah, we just kind of disagree um sure sure that's yeah. fine that's fine because we don't know, this is another thing you brought into a slightly different topic, which is we don't know what, what the, which of those markets are going to be the ones that are going to move like that, like you described. So we don't even know. Uh, it's, it's predicting. It's something that's going to happen in the future. I have Tesla and Palladium and gold. So I'm having a good year. And so how did you figure that out? How did you predict that? Oh, come on. You need to listen to these podcasts. <laughs> I didn't uh, predict that. I've been long these things forever, and they've had tremendous volatility. They're all sort of small positions because I trade, my, by my count, 60-some individual trends. You know, I try to figure that out. It's maybe 100 markets, but I really think it's only like 60 discernible different markets. And I'm totally in agreement right. on that. There's not 150. Yeah, exactly. What, that, we were, what we were sort yeah. of saying is, I wish there were 150. Right. Were and that I agree. I think we are in completely agreement on that. I mean, I think we're just talking about it differently, but that's true. I mean, I agree with that completely. So he he goes on to say, um, you know, he, he didn't need to read the article because he's sort of um, bemoaning the fact of how CTAs have evolved into being too similar. Uh, he says, the successful industry sales story He's down on the sales story, our sales story, CTA sales story, has been that systematic investing is scientific, testable, and repeatable. However, we exercise discretion to design our CTA investment program. It is neither really science nor art. A better way of describing it would be craftsmanship. I love that. Um, I know in the past two or three years, AQR wrote a paper using that exact same word, craftsmanship. It is you know, there is a lot of choices. We, you've heard about them this morning, talking to um, the th three of us talking and how we make these decisions. We're doing back testing. We're using computers and math and Excel back test programs. But it is a lot of uh, discretion on how we get to this systematic approach. But I would say that, uh, from my point of view, this um, you know evolving away from the turtles and John Henry and some of the old U.S. CTAs done maybe back in the 90s and 2000s where European CTAs were sort of taking over and raising and uh, improving the more original trend-following systems and creating big businesses. Um, this was their marketing sales story, scientific, testable, repeatable. We're scientists. We're, we have all these PhDs, 
but aren't you trend following? Yeah, yeah, but still, we're adding other things, we're, um, and trend following can benefit from our in, enhanced and enlightened way of uh, producing it. I mean, I think yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's no doubt that the uh, quote-unquote sales story for our strategy, um, you know, um, could be better. Um, and it does evolve, of course, uh, over time. And I don't think we as an industry have found the best way of um, of uh, really um, making it clear to investors why they need a core allocation in the portfolio because otherwise more people would have it. Um, so, um, yeah. And in the article, he also goes on, I think, to say something like... Um, Institutions and clients desired this sameness, is that they wanted to allocate to this asset class of CTAs, and they embraced the idea that about it would be index only, for instance. It would be no single stocks. You're confusing me. I don't need that. I want to put you in this basket, and you need to behave this way. Yes, we want vol targeting. Yes, and so all of these things he complains about, like where, what happened to all of us CTAs who were doing crazy things? So if Jerry says, all of a sudden, I'm going to trade single names, wonderful, perfect, give Jerry some of your money. If done, it's going to do 50 markets and indices. Oh, that's different. Let's add them. We welcome that. We embrace that. And I think he's sort of complaining like everyone just started doing kind of the same thing. And there was a right way and kind of a kooky way of doing trend following and he wants everybody to get back to being different. And so we're looking at these trends, but there's so many different ways to create programs that are more diversified. And so people start picking different managers rather than just saying, well, if you have Winton, you, you have enough. If you have Transgen or if you have Aspect, then that's what you need. One or two of those and you're done. And so I hope he's right because um, there's a lot of interesting things going on, niche players that yes, it is trend following, but it can look a lot different than um, the larger firms and that's certainly something i come across uh and when when you really get a chance to talk to investors about their choices and their portfolios i mean i think it's pretty rare to hear people having more than two ctas in their portfolio i mean let alone having ctas in a portfolio but if they do it's like down to one or two names so i do think that that is a really important point that even though we are correlated that doesn't mean our returns are the same in any shape uh, form. So uh, I, I think that that, that I, th I like that point uh, a lot. And I think we should be better um, at explaining our differences. And, and hopefully investors will be better at embracing those differences. How, how can you be different? I mean, I've been thinking about this for, for quite some time. And um, because, you know, the trend following rules, if you will, that the, the genie's out of the bottle. I mean, there's all those indices out there and, you know, books written about trend following. It's, it's, it's not a secret how it's done. I like the word craftsmanship. There's some, you know, stuff out there that you just philosophically have to get right and you have to have the experience probably to do it in the right way. But if you run a multi-billion dollar CTA fund that is a long-term trend follower, how are you going to be that different to the next multi-billion dollar fund that runs a long-term trend following system? And to me, it's not going to be the volatility or the risk that you're taking because that one you can scale up and down, right? If there's one manager that trades at 25 vol and the other one at 12 and a half, why just invest half of your money in the 25 and um, it's, it's down to the same thing, right? They're probably all going to be diversified across different timeframes. Um, and whether that's breakout or crossovers and all of that, like you say, Niels, um, every once in a while, you know, every day it will have a slightly different return, but the correlation is going to be very positive and very stable. So how are you going to be different? One guy to the next. And to me, it's really only different markets that you trade, or maybe you become concentrated. Maybe that, I, I, don't, I don't know, Harold, um, maybe that's one of the things that he's trying to achieve, you know, to differentiate Transtrend more from other CTAs by, you know, moving back to more concentrated trades. I don't know. Um, but it is an important question because if you are a lookalike CTA, like all the other ones, it's very difficult for the large accounts to allocate money to you. Yeah, we threw in another uh, a really good um, distinction, which is uh, multi-billion dollar. So, right, yeah. yeah, because they're going to, you know, lose the commodity impact. Exactly. And this yeah. is so valuable. Yes. You know, I mean, it's the, so, yeah. 
so I, I can he, still track milk and butter and rubber and you know all those markets and sometimes they have massive trends and then my performance will look different to um probably trans trend at that point in time but but i think you, you hit it right you know the the nail on the head right because in any industry once you get to a certain size you start mm -hmm. looking the same look at just supermarkets i mean i yeah. used to live in the uk for many years if I go into a Tesco or Sainsbury's, they look exactly the same. But right. if I go into a corner shop, it's going to be very different from the next corner shop. So I think the challenge to investors, uh, here's the thing. So why are the bigger getting bigger? Well, it's because I think invest, large investors prefer 50 PhDs and billions of dollars under management and all of those things, they tick the boxes. So that's where the money flows. We mm. know that from all the reports. So they're going to, exactly as you said, Maurice, they're going to end up looking incredibly similar. There's not much they can do to be different. But if you look at the performance last year of trend followers from, say, 50 million and upwards, and you know some of the people you uh, had dinner with in Miami, who they mm. are, mm. there were hardcore trend followers last year that were down, mm -hmm. and there were trend followers that were up a lot. Mm -hmm. So that's the point. We are different, but we are not different once we get to seven, eight, nine, ten billion per se. Agreed. Yeah, on the edge, on the edge, where the time frame and a little bit of the model and all of that, sure. But absolutely, and this is why I think investors should be more bold to look at the 500 million to two or three, four billion dollar space because I think that's where the gems that are still institutional in size, I think, uh, but I think that's where you can find some real gems. Seems to me that the um, those CTAs which are in, say, the 100 to 500 million bracket, let's call those ones the smaller ones, but you know, still institutional sized, yeah, right? Yeah. But less than a billion, that their performance is more dispersed uh, among just this group, right, than, than the larger ones. And, and there you could also make the argument, well, but they could all trade the commodities, all of them, right? So they should all be using diversification across timeframes and longs and shorts and all those markets. And they, they probably do, but there you can still get a larger a larger degree of separation between them. Whatever it is that drives that, I, I don't know, but it seems well, to choice, go away with the larger guys. I think it's choice more. It's choice of that's markets. What, that it, well, it's just choice. When you are smaller, you generally have more choice. When you get bigger, your choices get smaller. Right. <laughs> that's the, the you know, in my opinion. Exactly. What choices are you talking about? Well, I'm choice about markets you trade, and you know, just generally speaking, uh, time frame. You have to be more long term, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, those kind of choices. So you end up look as as Mort said earlier, they look very similar, um, and I think that's 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 what happens. And, and there probably there's also a little bit of a philosophical element in there. I mean, we know of some CTAs who say, oh, I'm not going to be trading financial assets. I only want to be in the commodities, right, or, or in the bonds and they will, or NFX, but they will never trade equities. And obviously this will then make a, a huge difference. Uh, we know of CTAs who um, almost do just the commodities and nothing but, obviously that will then be different. Um, so I guess that's part of the choice, right? How do you set yourself up in terms of portfolio? And maybe... You know, when you're when you're at the hundred million level, oh, may there's some room for some shorter term trading, maybe, right? Which you wouldn't be doing if you are at one billion, because it would just be too much. So that type of stuff, I guess, is is what I think should um, make allocators and investors think about, like you say, Niels, uh, giving those in the one hundred to five hundred million bracket a shot and allocate to more of those guys. But the reason they won't do it, frankly, are two things in my opinion. One, it's more work for the investor. Mm -hmm. And two, frankly, the consultants, they don't want to do, do the work. I know. It's and the, it's the career risk and all that, of that. Exactly. It, and the consultants control so much of the decision-making because they present the same 10 names. I mean, you, some of the way it works in reality is, and I don't want to offend anyone here, but that's what we are being told. We're being told by consult some consultants, not everyone, but some consultants, oh yeah, if you want us to review you, you need to get five of our clients to ask for that review. 
how do we do that? We don't know who your clients are, you know, and and so it's it's just convenient. It seems to me incredibly convenient to be reviewing the same ten names and just get all the assets into those. And it's not to the benefit of the client either that the gatekeepers Absolutely are behaving not. in that way. I, I think yeah. that's a bad uh, bad behavior there in the industry. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna guess on what they'd say in response to all of that, and that would be, we don't haven't seen performance, and so they're going to be left behind. And when the when it's evident that you need to have massive diversification, systematic trading, longs and shorts, then they're going to look deeper and say, well, we could have gotten a, a lot of that from the mid tier CTAs, but they weren't making money at the time. How were we supposed to know? <laughs> so. So now I think, you know, that's going to be two things that you need more CTAs, but you need more CTAs that can trade, uh, have more flexibility and can trade the commodities and are not so large. And that's what they'd say. That's what the whole story has been for 10 years is that doesn't seem to matter. Everything other than the S&P, uh, the Vanguard charges nine basis points for, it just doesn't seem to matter. I don't, okay, throw in some bonds, the 60-40 or whatever, that seems to help a little or I'm done. And so I think... In the future, it won't be so easy or so. And then on top of all of that, Jerry, you have certain uh, types of investors. You have certain countries uh, where Moritz lives, being one of them, where they don't want the commodities, right? Uh, some people say, oh, we don't want that because of, you know, uh, that could push up food prices or, or, or whatever. Uh, some people don't want them because... Uh, you know, from what I've been told by one of our uh, clients is that that commodities is is more uh, risky, even though we in you know, we size our position inverse to the volatility, so they're never more risky. It is so, so risky to not have them in your portfolio. It, it, well, that's exactly <laughs> right. You know, going for the safe portfolio, quote unquote, safe portfolio, is going to turn out to be much more risky than you can ever imagine. This goes back to something I want to. Maybe not today because we have some time constraints, but the piece that Chris Cole came out with recently, um, and Chris has obviously been on the podcast a while back, um, but the piece he came out with where it basically, uh, he, 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 his analysis uh, or research suggests that the U U.S. pension fund systems have 74 or some 71% exposure to equity and another 24% or something like that exposure to, uh, you know, fixed income. I mean, yeah, that might look safe right now, but can you imagine how risky that is once correlations go back to being long-term positive, which they are, and, and both of them goes down? So I don't want to disrupt your Twitter flow, uh, so let's keep doing. We can do the other... Uh, talk about the other topics at a later day, uh, Jerry. So just just keep going. This is great stuff. Well, let's just end with, I'm pretty sure he's, like me, a little uptight about vol targeting and crazy trading and indiscriminate selling and price-insensitive orders. He puts that in there. Um, he says it's a great social responsibility to contribute to well-functioning markets, considering their importance in our society. Respecting markets is completely in line with our objective to achieve attractive returns and sustainable returns for our investors. Becoming a he, they, he brings up this topic of becoming a liquidity provider than a liquidity taker. Uh, stop loss orders are potentially destabilizing since multiple stops triggered together can exaggerate market moves. So those little tweets can't fully... Um, capture everything he was trying to say about a lot of those topics and it's definitely worth reading but i just can't help but think that uh, anytime you and he talks about this where traders are just given tight time frames or uh, different goals of um, execution that can really harm the market to make them very unstable and crashes and especially the ones we've seen in the stock markets um, not recently and hopefully not for a while longer but that's the downside to all of this great diversification in stocks that I talk about in single names and finding 30 out of a thousand that should be less correlated to each other in the S&P while on those big crash days, Dow minus 500, Dow minus 1,000, whatever, there is no uh, refuge to be found. And I think that he brings up a very good topic. I think it's a touchy topic because it's hitting right at the core of a lot of his friends in Europe and the large CTAs who... Um, brag about 
their contribution to enhancing trend following and CTA managed futures by pretty much a constant volatility targeting. I think that's one side of it, uh, Jerry. I think the other side, which I think is perhaps much more of an issue, certainly in the equity space, is that you now have more passively managed funds than actively managed funds. So the indiscriminate selling for me really is also a result of the fact that you now have all these funds that are, you know, just ETFs or whatever, and they're not, they don't look at price, they just look at flows. And I think there are some, there were some headlines recently I saw or heard, or maybe it was from this uh, study that I uh, or interview I heard with uh, Chris Cole um, that there is like eighty or ninety percent of the daily flows in U.S. equities are from the just uh, you know passively managed or, or um, I wouldn't use the word algo because it's not what I mean. I mean just just flows rather than um, uh, you know price discovery kind of thing. So when when the proverbial hits the fan, then clearly. That's just going to be outflows, and these funds have only one thing to do, and that is execute the orders. And I think that kind of pressure on markets is going to be way outpacing any pressure we as the CTA space can put on 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 the markets. But that's just my personal opinion. But I agree, there is big risk in in what we're seeing in terms of how money is being managed uh, generally. I agree with that. It's. Um, uh it's very interesting to think about that, and it's uh, it's been covered on Real Vision uh, on a couple of occasions by Mike Green, who now works for our friend or with our friend uh, Wayne at Logica. The impact that all those passive flows uh, may have on the market and how destabilizing that may be, because it essentially tries to hit the close or trade at settlement um, completely regardless of um, you know what the individual component of the index has done on the day or what the fundamentals are it's just you know buy the basket buy them all together and uh, in addition combining that with all the short volatility trading that is another overlay that's happening in the market you know be that through uh, vol targeting which is essentially you know um, a short vol type of strategy that it provides or outright short vol trading um, it could be it could be uh, quite destabilizing that's right, and it's just the sh- the sheer size of it um, is uh, well. Who knows how large it is, but um, it's, it could be very large. Absolutely. So, just uh, in 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 the interest of of time today, because I know we have some hard stops on on our agendas, uh, let's jump to some questions and let's save some of these juicy conversations um, for uh, maybe next week. First question is coming in from uh, Michael, and uh, Michael writes, um, you three recently complained to yourselves about how you basically repeat yourselves over and over on the podcast. This is true. You do repeat yourselves a lot. However, in my opinion, this is not a bug, but a feature. Reading or hearing a concept only once usually does not have a lasting effect on the listener, especially if the concept is so simple yet profound as trend following. So for me at least, the weekly dose of your thinking is invaluable because it lets the concept really sink in. A little, a bit like brainwashing, but in a good way. So thanks for that comment, uh, Michael. Now, then comes a little bit of a question uh, what I would love to understand is who brainwashed you or did you not need any external help for that uh, and it was just love at first sight. I know Jerry had his teachings in the turtle program, but many other turtles did not succeed out there in the free world after they quit the program. So, great question, Michael. Um, let's start with you, Jerry, because I think a lot of most listeners are familiar with your story. So, uh the brainwashing of Jerry Parker. Uh, yeah, not only, but I was uh, desiring such brainwashing. I was ready, willing, and able. So I read about trend following, thought it was wonderful from day one, just my office in Richmond, Virginia, 1982, 83, and whatever I could get my hands on. And then when I got proper training, I was susceptible to believing it more than the people who were training me. And so... But then, as I've said over the years, I was just never really 
be comfortable um, hearing new ideas or new tw new twists or new ways of explaining things and understanding and dismiss it. I always sort of just said, okay, I like it. I'm going to absorb it and adopt it as my own, or I'm going to put it in my back pocket for a while, put it on the shelf. These are smart people. I'm not going to rule it out quite yet. <clears throat> and then maybe a year or two later, I'll be able to understand it better. And that happened to me as well. So, but once again, I think there's nothing more important than um, crafting your, you know, your 10 commandments. What are your 10 or 20 commandments? What are the things that you really believe in the core? And we mentioned a lot of them today. So um, all the markets have the same expectation. So, I mean, that could be number one or it's in the top five. And so that's going to really influence and keep in the good stuff and keep out the bad stuff for the most part. You're going to have to always... Maybe, maybe I'll change my mind after 35 years about something, you know. Um, I want to be the kind of person that that's possible. I doubt it, but I, I'd like to be. What about you, Moritz? Who brainwashed you? Ah, still still need the brainwashing and the hat washing every once in a while, I guess. Uh, but um, I, I like the comment because I think it is true. It was certainly true for me. You need to hear things over and over and over again. Uh, before they really think uh, sink in, and um, and you uh, you start trusting them, and you you no longer deviate from the commandments. That it's not done by just reading about it once or putting it into a spreadsheet for one time. And that that is that 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 isn't how it worked for me. I mean, I got my you know handed my head on the platter to me after the crash of the um, the tech bubble when I was not yet a full systematic trader and had all those, you know, positions on in tech stocks because it was just very cool. And that's, that's when I decided, well, I need something that I can at least test, right. And where it can at least quantify the risk and, and there's trend following. So I started to get into that. And for me, it was just reading everything that I could possibly find on the topic from many, many different sources, um, you know, Etsy, Coda and Market Wizards and uh, all the books about trend following and papers and reading about the firms and reading about Chesapeake and trying to, to get my head around what it is that they do and, and, and replicate things, test it, try it out and fail, gain the experience, fail again and eventually get it right. Oh, I hope I've don't, you never know whether we get it right, but um, it's it's been we've said this before. It's been this it's this process and and that journey that I think all of us have to go through. There's no person that I know that is a born trend following trader that you know comes to this world and is a trend following trader. You know you that stuff is difficult for your brain to really accept, for your emotions to accept and live with, and therefore it requires teaching. Um, you can teach it yourself. It doesn't require an external teacher. Maybe a coach is a great thing to have, but I don't think it's a necessity. You can teach it yourself, but it is nothing that you can teach yourself in a day or two. It is a very repetitive, uh, humbling thing that you have to chisel into your head in a way um, over a long time, and then it stays there. And then a lot of things in life become, this is actually a very a benefit. You know, once you, in, in my case, once you have that mindset, a lot of things in life become visible through a lens of probabilities and bets and trend following and the decision-making kind of changes and you get a different perspective on other things in life than just your portfolio. And I've actually found that very beneficial uh, on, a, on, a, on a personal level um, as well. So there's something to be gained from that line of thinking in addition to improving your portfolio. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, from my perspective uh, you know i think experience uh, is is has been a, a really important part of of uh, building my uh, not just understanding but but belief uh, in trend following I and mean, i started out as a government bond trader back in the 80s so i know what it's like to trade without any rules and how it's like to lose a lot of money without any rules um and but then being introduced to the concept starting investing um 
uh, in the, in the space back in the early 90s, uh, invested with Jerry, I think in, I missed the 93 for our clients, but I think 94 was probably when we deployed some money with Jerry. So, um, so I think just building up the confidence. Back then, there were no podcasts. There were very few books written about it. So it wasn't kind of a place where I could just go and just learn about it. That came later when you add, uh, as you said, Mort, you add or you know uh, a, a lot through uh, uh, listening and reading and all of that stuff. But but just the experience, just seeing it firsthand, and and how it made sense and how I could uh, relate it back to uh, my own trading and experience. It just made so much more sense to uh, to do it this way. So, absolutely. You know, just this week I was looking at some new ideas and trading and things I've been working on for a long time, and I said i came to this conclusion that um with this new sort of strategy or idea that i would have done this trade that i've criticized over the years uh, because i've read about other traders doing this trade and i was like that's not a trade i would have done and they were wrong to do that trade and then immediately when i saw that chart and then i had this new idea that i think is promising i was like oh darn maybe that's why they're doing this trade and so you just got to be honest with yourself, you know, and I immediately thought, calling myself out, you know, I, oh, crap, I've criticized, made fun of that trade for many years, and yet now I see there could be something there that I just sort of missed. And you just got to be like that, at least with yourself, you know, <clears throat> maybe don't take that into a marketing meeting, but um, you got to talk to yourself and tell you, you know, just be a real person about what you believe, what you know to be true and your weaknesses. And I think the other thing is uh, you touch on, I think, uh, Jerry, in, in that comment is just to say that even after all these years, I think we're all still students of trend following. I mean, it's an ongoing journey. It's, it never stops. Uh, I think that's important as well. One thing I want to add to that, which which just as, as you guys have been speaking came to my head is, is you know, I, I remember like 20 years back, I've, um, you know, found myself many times going like, well, I can be smarter than what those guys are doing because you know, look at the track record of Chesapeake. Really? Is this, is this all there is? It's so, it should be really easy to do better right? because this guy is only using price and this can't be right because there's so much more information out there. So it's going to be easy to knock Chesapeake out of the park and just do something that's so much better. And, you know, as a young kid, you, you try because you think it's possible. Right. And, uh, and <laughs> so you try and you try and you had all those things and, uh, you know, you, you find something that works. Okay, great. Then you find out that you've curfeited, so it doesn't really work, right? So it's this um, kind of like, you know, 360 uh, thing that you have to go through, uh, at least in my case, you have to, to go for it and try to be better and then you come back to, well, no, it is the price. The price is the only thing that doesn't really... It's the only indicator that doesn't deviate from anything else. It's it's the the true lightning rod, and um, and simple is good enough. That is very important um, arrival point. That's good, you know, because I was thinking that I made the decision as well because in my and I knew pretty quickly, uh, or that I was not going to be the type of person or be able to do the same things that some of the larger firms were doing the PhDs and all of that stuff. So I said, okay, here's how I could possibly win. I'll be the most robust. I'll have the fewest number of rules. I'll only do long-term trend following. I'll be as diversified as possible. I'll, I'll do stocks. Every, I'll, I'll be the one who sticks with the tried and true, the most boring, the most conservative way of approaching this is everyone. Maybe that'll be my edge. And, um, you know, for our first 10 years, we made money every year. And we had tremendous volatility, great drawdowns. Nothing looked good. The sharp was probably not that great. Uh, we were just consistent. And I was like, ah, this is another thing, too. Just be consistent. People don't pay a lot of attention. And you could just say, oh, we make money, like, almost all the time. And, and so there's many different ways you can distinguish yourself. Just get in there, figure yourself out, what you can accomplish. And uh, you'll have your day in the sun, possibly. Um, and if I'd have done more of that, my track record would look even better. Less, less is more for me. Great stuff. I think I'm going to leave the next uh, few questions for next week. So sorry, Brian, JJ, and or Jacob, and, and Adrian. I know you're sending questions, and we will definitely get to them. But 
Um, this was a little bit longer answer to Michael's question, which was great, and I think people um, got some value from that. So, but we have some uh, hard stop today uh, in terms of time. Uh, in terms of performance, which we normally recap, uh, you know, all the indices are doing well for February. Beta 50 up three and a quarter. Sockgen CTA up four and a quarter. Sockgen Trend up 5.64. And Sockgen Short Term Traders Index up four point, oh, sorry, up 1.45 for February. And the bridge alternatives is up just above 4%. Um, let me also say that if you've missed it in some of the prior episodes, there is a new release of uh, a guide uh, that I call the ultimate guide to the best investment books of all times. So if you want to get, um, you know, more than 100 different titles for you to read, uh, just go to the website, toptradersonplug.com. But I also want to say before I leave you, I want to say that we don't take your attention for granted and the journey that we're on is solely because of you gifting us your time every week and attention. So much love and appreciation to everyone out there who took a chance on the show and who have become part of this audience. It seems, uh, or it means so much to us, uh, and it's really your energy and enthusiasm and engagement that, um, you know, with what we do that, that keeps us, us going, even on a day where both Jerry and I feel a little bit under the weather, as you probably can hear. So uh, on that note, um, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and from Jerry Mortz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.